If you're able, would you remain standing and in your Bibles turn to Ephesians chapter 6 for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5, this is the word of our Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as man pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, you receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you open our eyes to see glorious things concerning you and your word, for asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Our culture chafes under uh, any approval or chases against any approval of slavery, even if it's just a perceived approval. Now, we read a text like this one and see Paul regulating the relationship of master and slave, and we think that Paul is implicitly approving slavery. That is enough to push people away from the Bible. And they say, I I don't want to have anything to do with a book that condones slavery. Now remember, Paul is addressing the household in this portion of Ephesians. In the first century, slaves were part of the household. By addressing them, by addressing the slaves, Paul is elevating the status and worth of the same as their master's. They're both members of the household. As we try to get our minds around what this passage is teaching, let me tell you about four ways in which the issue of slavery looked different to a first century Christian than it does for us today. One of the things that our culture does is, is it tends to look at all of history as if it were today. Now, if, if you think about the notion of cancel culture, that's the idea. That somehow we're going to hold the entirety of history by today's standards instead of trying to figure out what people believed at the time and see how that impact what they, they did. So before we actually get to look at verses 5 through 9, I have a long introduction, which might prove to be the entire sermon for today, on how we should prepare ourselves to look at this passage. I want to start by looking at these four ways in which slavery, as it's described here, would look very different to a first century Christian than it does to us today. And the first one is this. Slavery was an integral part of the society and economic world of the first century. Slavery was everywhere. There's some... uh, uh, variation in opinion, but scholars say that at least a third of all citizens of Ephesians, all inhabitants of Ephesians were slaves. 30, 33% of the Ephesian population was a slave, and that would demonstrate itself in the church as well. The slaves would have served in virtually every capacity from 
mine, uh, from salt miners to doctors. As a matter of fact, I'm reading a book just because I have to on ancient medicine. It's a part of a course that I'm taking, and is the history of medicine from 600 BC to 200 AD. You know, very valuable stuff, stuff we can use today. But during that time, medicine was primarily, at least in the first century, medicine was primarily practiced by slaves. was something that slaves uh, did. And slavery was so much a part of the world of that day that as an institution, it would almost have escaped the notice of early Christians. It was so common, it was so everywhere, that it would be something that it would be very easy not to see that was there, just because it was so prevalent everywhere. Secondly, as Americans, freedom and liberty are so ingrained in our conscience that we think that's what everybody wants everywhere. But freedom or liberation was not in the first century uh, the, the obvious good that it is for us in the modern world. Now, for Americans, slavery as a system is always informed by what? By our knowledge of antebellum southern slavery, what's called chattel slavery, the, the, the atrocities that were committed in this country, uh, 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 and often under the banner of Christianity. But that's not the slavery that was present in the first century. To be sure, there were slaves that were captured and forced into slavery through wars and other, other means, but the majority of slaves in the first century sold themselves voluntarily into slavery. It was not racial-based. Racial As a matter of fact, the, words, the English word slave comes from the word slav, which is the name of the northern tribes in Europe that were blonde and blue-eyed. So in first century, slavery was not a racial uh, uh, thing. There, was, there were slaves of all colors. And since they were spread over so many occupations, there was no sense of solidarity either. And legal freedom was not always a positive move for a slave because once a freedman, it was very, very difficult to make a living. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? as he's there in the pigsty, wishing he could eat the food that the pigs are eating, what is it that he determines to do? I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm not going to, even, I'm not going to be a son. I'm not even going to ask him to be a slave. I'm going to be, ask him to be like one of his hired servants. Because in the economy of things, a hired servant had even a lower status than a slave. So being freed from slavery wasn't as glorious a thing as we think it is today. Thirdly, the New Testament Christians were a tiny religious group living within an all-powerful authoritarian regime. There was not much they could do at the time to change what was going on there. And, And New Testament Christians realized, fourthly, that whether you're free or a slave, God called you to live in a certain way. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, bristle under the idea that the Bible tells the slaves to behave in a certain way. Because if that's where you find yourself to be, Christ is your Lord and He has a way that you are to, to behave. Now having said all that, a continuation of the master-slave relationship that is, a continuation of slavery as an institution is not compatible with Christianity. Slavery and Christianity are not compatible. Therefore, there are several reasons why we can and should insist on the abolition of 
slavery. By the way, there's more slavery. There's more slaves in the world today than there was during the colonial times in the whole world. And most of them are not black necessarily or a particular racial group. And most of them are slaves under Islam. The Muslims are, the, as a group, the largest owners of slaves in the world today. But we should fight against slavery. You know, scriptures, Scripture is known to regulate. Just because the Bible talks about slavery and how the slaves should behave doesn't mean it condones it. Scripture is known to regulate undesirable relationships without condoning them as a permanent ideal. The Scriptures regulate divorce. The scriptures regulate polygamy without condoning them. It's almost addressing what it is. This is that's where you are. Okay, that's what you have to do. Um, you know, so that things don't get any worse. Paul's recommendation for how slaves and masters relate to one another does not assume the goodness of the institution. In the back of your bulletin, I put a long quote from Wayne Grudem that says, the Bible does not approve of uh, or command slavery any more than it approves or commands persecution of Christians. When the author of Hebrews commands his readers by saying, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, that does not mean the Bible supports the plundering of Christians' property or that it, com- it commands theft. It only means that if Christians have their property taken through persecution, they should still rejoice because of their heavenly treasure, which cannot be stolen. Similarly, when the Bible tells slaves to be submissive to their masters, it does not mean that the Bible supports or commands slavery, but only that it tells people who are slaves how they should respond. This institution of slavery is not grounded in the creation order. The institution of slavery is a result of sin. It's a result of the fallen nature of humanity. And on several occasions, the New Testament uh, gives us the seed for the dissolution of slavery as an institution. And this is especially seen in the book of Philemon. Have you ever read through Philemon? You know the occasion for the writing from Philemon. This slave escapes his masters in Colossae, and he makes his way to Rome, where he just happens to be put in the same cell as Paul. No, <laughs> providentially, that's what happened to him. So Paul comes in contact with him, and Paul witnesses to him, and Onesimus, which is the name of the slave, gets saved under the preaching of Paul. And Paul says, you need to go back to Philemon, your master. And you need to render yourself back to him and let him do whatever you want. And then Paul writes the letter that we call Philemon to go along with Onesimus. And if you read the letter, this is what you get from. So Paul writes to him, say, hey, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you how to do it. But a good Christian would let this guy go. You know, uh, and you know, Philemon, you owe me a great debt. And I'm not asking for anything from you here. I'm not asking to pay the debt. But this guy is your brother. And you should consider him as a brother, not as a slave. So you can see there where Paul had the influence, he sowed the seed of ending the institution of slavery among Christians. There is no permanent moral command in the Bible with reference to the institution of slavery. And Paul himself is adapting himself to a temporary and ultimately repugnant social construct 
the idea of slavery. As a matter of fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or chapter 7, sorry, Paul explicitly envisions and endorses the possibility of a slave obtaining freedom. He says in chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 21, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. So you can see that slavery is not consistent with Christianity. And the tone of the New Testament is that uh, that institution should be abolished, uh, at least among Christians. And Christians should fight against this. And in our passage here today, Paul is applying to the family the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the basic Christian confession. That's a big basic statement of faith in the Bible, in the New Testament, is that Jesus is Lord. And he said, this is, how going, this is how it's going to work between husband and wife, children and parents, and slaves and masters, because that's the household. And this passage, then, is helpful to us in that it shows us that Christ is also Lord of the workplace, so we can look at this relationship between master and slave and learn how Christ should be the master of the way that we work, the way that we manage, the way that we employ people, the way that we're employed. But also it applies for the way that you do school or whatever other activities you do. Is all, all of it is under the umbrella of the confession, Jesus is Lord. I really think that there is a great problem with the modern view of work. I think the way that people in general think of work is not a biblical way of thinking. Have you ever seen the bumper stickers that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go? Have you ever seen that in, on, on the back of a car? Now, if the people that put it on their cars really mean it, then they are saying that their main reason to, for work is to retire their debts. And don't get me wrong, it is a good thing to retire our debts. We should be working on that. But is that the only or even the main reason why you ought to work? So that you can retire your debts? I think Paul has a different motivation to work here in this particular passage. Or perhaps you have heard friends express that they can't wait for the weekend. They live for the weekend. They work so that they can get to the weekend. Or they work so they can go on vacations. Again, I'm not against the weekends. And I love vacations. But is that our motivation to work? The weekend is looked upon as something to relieve them from the drudgery of work, which is viewed as a necessary evil. And I think often that's how we think of work, as a necessary evil to get us to be able to do something that we really enjoy. We work so that we can do what we really want to do on our weekends. We can't wait for Friday to come so that we can get away from this thing that is only a means to help us do what we really want to do, which is escape into some world of recreation. No, TGIF, right? That's what we, we say. These are not biblical views of work. This is not how the Bible describes work and our calling in life. We're going to see a little more on that in a moment. I wanted you to notice here in this passage that Paul asserts the lordship of Christ in work relations. He says to masters and slaves, Christ is Lord over your work, and Christ is Lord over your management of those who work for you. This is a radical assertion to those who lived in a society where slaves had very, very, very few rights 
And Paul comes and says, masters and slaves, the same standard applied to both of you. That was, a, that was unheard of in the first century. And notice that in our passage, Paul treats slaves as people, as persons. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, uh, there was no laws concerning rights for slaves. As a matter of fact, slaves would have been equivalent to cattle, possessions, things. They would have had no rights before the courts. But Paul speaks to them as thinking, feeling, living, breathing Christian human beings. And he instructs them as persons as well. And notice that Paul sets forth a principle of reciprocity between the masters and the slave. Masters must be concerned about those whom they employ, and those who labor must be concerned about the needs of the masters. Just like he does in family relations, just like he does in church relations, he expects a principle of Christian reciprocity to reign in work relationships. He expects Christians who are employers and employees to take care of one another and to serve well those with whom they work. That's the principle. That employers and employees take care of one another and that they serve each other. Isn't that so contrary to how a lot of our society thinks of, of work? You know, there was a time where... where and that, Let's see how many people can offend with this. There was a time where the labor movement was necessary. Unions were necessary. There was abuse of... But that labor movement created a situation where you have an antagonistic relationship between employee and employer. And this idea that the best situation of an employee and employer is where everybody wins and everybody's serving each other is contrary to the whole idea of, of, the labor, of, of unions and the labor movement uh, today. Paul calls us, Christ calls us, to serve one another and to, have, to look out for each other's interests. And that includes the way that we work, the way that we employ, the way that we manage, the way that we serve in our places. Okay, now we're ready to learn from this passage. All this so far has been an uh, introduction uh, that, def- that, in essence, breaks every rule that you learn in seminary about introductions. So the first thing I want us to see directly from our, pas- from our passage is this. The Christian should do all of his work as if he were doing it for the Lord. Because he is. Look at verse 5. Bond servants... Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Paul teaches that Christ has freed us to work more effectively. Christ doesn't free us from work. Work is not the result of sin. Work, we are created for it. Even if Adam and Eve had never fallen, we would be busy at work because that's what we're created to do. And what Christ has done for us is that he has freed us to work more effectively. Uh, The slaves could have asked, now we, we are freeing Christ. Does that mean that we no longer have to obey these horrible rules from our masters? And Paul answers, no. Christian liberty has freed you to work more effectively. It has not lessened your motive for working. It's freed you to give yourself in your labors and to do it as unto the Lord. It freed you to rejoice in whatever work it is that God has put before you 
for you to do. And Christ frees us from the from man pleasing and from my service. Christ frees us from having for for being from being bound to this idea that we are working for somebody else's approval other than Christ. Look again at verses five and six. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as man pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. The tendency of a person who is underpaid and underappreciated is to give a min- minimalistic effort to the employer. As long as the employer is watching, that person may try and look like they are working hard, but when the employer is gone, you know what happens, right? We reduce ourselves to that minimal effort necessary to get by and to still somehow keep our, our jobs. I remember when one of our people started, not going to say their names because this is being recorded, but one of our people started working for a particular municipality that shall, not, shall remain nameless that uh, he would do his work and get done in two hours and the rest of the crew would get mad at him, said, this work must last us eight hours. Make sure that is that long. And, but that's not the attitude of the Christian. Paul says, don't work that way. Work as if you are constantly aware that the eyes of Christ are upon you. Because that's the truth. We don't have to be ineffective, lazy, and self-centered in our work. We can be selfless and serve Christ in it. Christ also frees us to fear him in our works. Look at verse 8, uh, 7 and 8. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. Our accountability is to the Lord. We can fear him in our work. Uh, uh, Colossians 3.22, which is a parallel passage, is even clearer on this, where Paul says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with high service as men, as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. It is to the Lord that we give an account. Ultimately, that's what we do. Uh, by saying that, Paul is affirming that all work done for the master can be done with dignity. There's dignity in every lawful employment. Now, if you have a job that the Bible forbids, then there's no way that you can do that for the glory of God. It's impossible. But if you're doing a lawful job, there's dignity in what you're doing. It doesn't matter, matter whether you are a member of a learned profession or not. Even every lawful vocation can be done for the glory of God. And here we, are, we, we see a great principle that the reformers and the Puritans caught on. We, we so often make a dichotomy in our view of work today. We, we think that there are spiritual occupations like being a pastor, a missionary, a Sunday school teacher, an elder, whatever it is. And then there are secular works. And in our eyes, these are much lower and less important to things, things like being doctors and lawyers and engineers and nurses and homemakers and teachers and whatever else. But Paul says, because Christ is Lord of your work, no matter what you do, he wants you to manifest his lordship as you do it. Anybody know who Booker T. Washington was? A celebrated freed 
uh, slave in the United States. He, he said once, No race can prosper until it learns that there is as much dignity in tilling a field as in writing a poem. And vice versa, because we live in a society that uh, emphasizes STEM education so much that we forget about the humanities as well. There's uh, as much value in one that uh, writes a poem for a living, writes a book for a living, as it is one who is an engineer and so on. We, we live in a day and age where certain professions are honored above others, and yet if you do what you do for the glory of God, it has eternal value in it. He cares how you labor, and he cares about the way you treat those with whom and for whom you labor. And Paul continues, and he tells us that the Christian should do all his work from the heart. Not just to finish the day, not just to get a paycheck, but from the heart. Again, verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as man pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Christ frees us to work wholeheartedly for those that employ us. Paul is here speaking about that half-hearted work and service which characterizes so much of our community today. Now, have you ever gone to a, a service establishment where you come in and you feel like you're bothering the clerk? That, the, that you're bothering the person behind the... I'm sorry, I just want to give you my money. I'm sorry that I'm bothering you for that. Or, you know, um, uh, their hearts do not appear to be in it. And Paul is saying, don't work that way. Work from the soul. Give yourself in your work. Enjoy your work. Throw yourself into this work that the Lord has given to you. Look at your work as a vocation. Which also says, if you don't think that God can call you to do what you're doing, then you might consider, it might doing something that's lawful. But instead of just thinking of a job, thinking of vocations, a calling from the Lord, for that moment, it may not be what you do for the rest of your life, but for that, that moment, that's what God's calling you to do and to serve Him in that, that right then. Paul here is waging war against half-hearted service. And is, isn't that the tendency, though, of those who are either slaves or, or underappreciated or underpaid? And this, young people is why it is so important that you choose your profession to remember that all work is a result of the Lord's calling, not just the ministry, not just the missionary work, but if God calls you to be a window washer, to be the best window washer that you can be. And if God calls you to be a manufacturer of something or a giver of service or a professional, you should seek the Lord's wisdom and guidance so that you can do whatever you do wholeheartedly. And that's why it's so important that you also figure out what you're going to do. To make sure that you can do that with your whole heart, giving of yourself to the Lord as you do that. So Paul is looking for whole-souled service in the workplace and how we need that in our own time today. And then he says in verse 8 that Christians should realize that their work will be rewarded. Look at verse 8. 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And Paul is speaking to slaves initially here. In the, in the Roman world, slaves were obviously not rewarded with great remuneration for their labors. That's, that's the opposite of the definition of a slave. You know, being rewarded for what you do. They had food and shelter and other basic forms of care, but they were not paid for their labors. And Paul is saying to these slaves, you will be rewarded. In Colossians, Paul adds this clause, you will receive a reward of inheritance. Not just a reward, but a reward of inheritance. Now, that must have been very special to the ears of those slaves because under Greco-Roman law, no slave could inherit anything. It was forbidden for a slave to inherit anything. So this clause must have shocked everyone here in the reading of this letter. Now, why are they going to be rewarded? Well, because they serve the master with a capital M. They serve the Lord who is in heaven, and he will not fail to give them their inheritance, even if man failed to do so. Every single one of us, at some time or another, may be put in circumstances where we are robbed in labor of that which is due us. Perhaps it is because we have been defrauded in a business relationship, a partnership. Or perhaps it is because we work for an employer who does not pay us appropriately. Perhaps we are an employer who has employees we steal from us. Paul is saying here, no matter how difficult the situation is in which you work, no matter if you are being robbed of that which is rightfully yours in your labor, you will be rewarded. And your reward is going to be Christ himself. And that's where the That's the crux of the matter. Does that sound good to you? If all that you got was Christ, would you be satisfied with that? Really, that's that's what really matters here. If you never got paid for what you you did, if you're robbed of all your status at work and whatever you do, but you're promised Christ and His fullness, would you be okay with that? If you would not be okay with that, then you need to look at your heart. And check, what is it that I really believe concerning Christ? So we see here that God cares about your work. And He wants it to be done under the liberty and the rule of Christ. A liberty that frees you to work as unto the Lord. Where you're not bound to the standards of this world anymore. And you can look for the interests of others as you serve Him in your workplace. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good God who speaks to every area of life. We pray that you give us the grace to to submit to you in this area, that we will work for your glory, that we might be able to serve Christ as we bless others around us. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.